Hello and welcome to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast. This one's from October 2018 and covers the years 1887 to 1889. Centuries of Sound is a monthly mix of original music and sounds from a year in history. Right now we're up to 1926. To download full mixes and enjoy a host of other benefits, please come to patreon.com slash centuriesofsound. Enjoy the show. My lord... Hello and welcome to Centuries of Sound. I'm James. And I'm Sean. And this is the show where we take you on an audio time travel trip through the centuries. And today, what years are we doing? 1887 to 1889. We're doing the late 80s. I love the 80s. Do you love the 80s? Oh, I love the 80s. Queen Victoria's big poof on hair and shoulder pads, I'll tell you what. Yeah. was something else. Let's have a, a listen to the only recording from 1887. This is a horrible thing. Do you want to hear a really horrible thing? I'd love to hear a really horrible thing. Sean, were you uh, familiar with uh, Teddy Rockspin when you were a kid? Did you uh, have one of those? No, I was familiar with Thomas the Tank Engine and Fireman Sam. but Teddy Rockspin was a teddy bear that is, you put a tape in the back of it and it tells you a bedtime story. That is terrifying. It is, but not as terrifying as this. This is, a, this is the sound of a doll you can buy and it will say this to you. Okay, it's not not the most terrifying sound in the world. Sounds like Neville Chamberlain telling us we had peace in our time. To be honest, it does a bit. Um, there's another one where they uh, pitch up the voice, and it's uh, "If I Should Die Before I Wake." It's that thing. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you probably wouldn't want to subject your you know, your kids to that. So it didn't sell well and uh, was discontinued almost immediately. Um, but this gives you an idea of uh, what Edison thought about his new invention. He didn't think it was going to be a home entertainment system. He thought it was a novelty item, and it was. So we're in the late 80s. Let's hear a bit about the late 80s then. What can you tell us about these few years? Well, in 1887, Queen Victoria celebrates her 50th Golden Jubilee. Bloody Sunday occurs in Ireland. One of the many Bloody Sundays. One of the many Bloody Sundays. Mm. Benjamin Harrison is President of the United States. Mm. Um, actually, not, not a lot's going on in European history. Uh, well, obviously a lot is, but there's not a lot of wars going on. There's not a huge amount of conflict in between, really, the Battle of Waterloo and World War One. Obviously, you have the Franco-Prussian War, which occurs... Mm-hmm. 1870s, top of my head. But really, not a lot going along. There's a lot of people who are very wealthy, mm. can travel along around Europe, do the Grand Tour. It's a good, quite a good time if you're rich. So this is the lull between that Franco-Prussian War and yep. the First World War beginning. Absolutely. Kind of a golden time. And in America, yes. it's called the Gilded Age, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Um, of course, gilded means uh, covered lightly in gold, so it's not, it's not really solid gold. It's just got a gold coating on the outside. Well, how about the, the sounds? The sounds of this time, um, obviously, a proviso that goes with all of these is that we don't have a accurate representation of music at the time. We have experiments. Last time we had uh, the initial experiments. This is the prototype era we're on now. The gramophone and the phonograph have been experimental toys for a decade. Their inventors deciding to tinker with them from time to time in between other more immediately lucrative projects. In 1887, aside from Edison's occasional developments, Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Labs had developed significant improvements in both cylinder and disc recording, and Emil Berliner filed his first patent for what he called a gramophone. 
Most importantly, on March 28th, a group of businessmen from Philadelphia created the American Graphophone Company in order to produce and sell phonograph machines. And eventually this would be Columbia Records, and they are kind of still around today. It would be nice at this stage to cite these developments as the birth of the recording industry, but we're still a couple of steps away from that. These inventions, whether using cylinders or discs, were merely private prototypes of dictation machines intended for listening on a stethoscope-like device. Um, so it's interesting in a vague way, but needing a showman to get people excited. And this came around in the form of uh, a man called Colonel George Gourod, who was employed as Edison's agent in Europe. So, have you heard of George Gourod? I haven't at all, though I'm wondering whether the colonel was an actual title or an affectation. He wasn't uh, one of these fake colonels, he was a real colonel. Um, so he was the son of a French engineer, and uh, he was born in the USA, and he fought for the United States Army, that's the North, in the Civil War, ah. and uh, received the Medal of Honor for Bravery as a captain, and then eventually he was made a lieutenant colonel. After the war, he had a few different uh, jobs, but then he became affiliated with Thomas Edison. And uh, the thing he did for Edison, he moved with his family to London in 1873 to become Edison's European agent. Um, as an enthusiast of new electric inventions, he had many gadgets installed in his house. It was a fully electric house, which was one of the first at the time. It was a novelty on its own. And it was in uh, Upper Norwood in South London. And he had, this house was called Little Menlo. In 1888, Thomas Edison sent his perfected phonograph to Gourod in London. And on 14th of August, 1888, Gourod introduced the phonograph to London in a press conference. And he played a piano and cornet recording of Arthur Sullivan's The Lost Chord. So this is one of the first proper recordings of music ever made. And uh, the performers here, this is, it's labelled as Unknown Performer and Miss Eyre. The Lost Chord. Miss Eyre is playing piano. Um, what do we know about her? She's the wife of Alfred James Eyre, who was the organist at the Crystal Palace. Um, and she was also a professor of pianoforte, according to a census at the time. Wow. Um, so, yeah, this is Miss Eyre uh, with The Lost Chord. That's fairly pleasant, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. What's that shaking noise in the... Uh, well, this is a very early cylinder, so uh, we're very lucky to have... That's, that's, what, that's what a cylinder sounds like after a substantial ah. amount of, of uh, restoration work has been done on it. Um, it's, a, it's a strange thing. I, I have to restore quite a lot of these recordings. And what you find is... Um, you can get rid of the noise, usually, but you're left with this uh, weird metallic kind of ringing noise. It's, it's mm. the, you kind of tune out the noise, and uh, yeah, you're left with this strange sound, which you, you can't really get rid of in the end. So he played that to people, and people were astonished, obviously, because they'd never heard recorded music before. After that, Gouraud had a series of parties at uh, Little Menlo. He would invite the great and the good to come round to his party, and... Uh, He'd play some phonograph recordings and, uh, yeah, he'd uh, impress these famous people. Um, should we hear what he, what he sounds like? Yes. This is yes. him introducing the guests at one of his parties. We're, we're very lucky that 
for one of his parties and one with some pretty famous guests. Uh, we've got a full set of cylinders, so we're going to be hearing those for a little bit. This is him talking about his guests. My lords and gentlemen, I confess to some embarrassment upon this occasion. <laughs> Speaking as I do for the first time in public, and in the presence of so distinguished a company. <clears throat> I feel greatly honored by your presence here tonight. A company distinctly representative in its character. All right. It's a strange accent he has, isn't it? Yes, it's almost English. Mm. Yeah, it's a, that, well... The transatlantic thing, I think, is, yes, it's got that um, that kind of clipped speech people might be familiar with mm. from uh, screwball comedies of the twenties, slightly. Mm. Um, yeah, that was. I think that was actually the way people were talking. Um, so he he said that, and then he uh, he played some more recordings. This is another piano solo by uh, Margaret Eyre. Let's uh, let's hear a little bit of that. Yes. So it's still not a hugely impressive piece of music. I think you might agree. It's it's okay. I think. Yeah, it's 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 something. Yeah, it's something. Least. It is something. Do we know if Miss Eyre would have been paid anything for this? I think it's quite likely she would have been paid. I think she was a professional musician. Mm. So um, yeah, I, it, I think maybe the first recording, recording artist. Yeah. You could say in a sense she's the first recording artist. Loads of people have a claim on that one. This was a recording on uh, white wax. I think the first word you would use when you describe the, the sound it gives is muffled. Yes. Um, although, also, it does kind of, while it sounds muffled, it, it gives you a higher range of sounds than mm. the brown wax cylinders, which will come next. It, it lacks clarity, you can see, but the, you, you did hear some kind of low bass notes and mm-hmm. some high notes, which you, you don't get with those uh, brown wax cylinders. Um, all right, so uh, let's let's see who's at the party. We have quite a gathering of people here. Although only one, perhaps two names will be famous these days. Um, the first person we're going to hear from is somebody called Cecil Rakes, who I don't know very much about at all, apart from he's, a, at this point, the Postmaster General. Can you tell us anything about Cecil yet? Uh, not a lot more than that. So he's a Conservative politician, studied at Trinity College, Cambridge. Oh, a local um, boy. A local boy. Uh, at this point, of course, as largely now, actually, most politicians study at Oxford or mm-hmm. Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, he was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, for any American viewers here, it is quite like your Ways and Means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially in charge of setting parliamentary bi- bi- business, uh, largely fallen out of use now. Mm. Uh, it's still there, but doesn't do very much. So a postmaster general. Yeah. I wonder what, what that entails, being in charge of the post. Yes, so. essentially Tony Benn was postmaster general in the ni- 1960s. Oh, okay. So it's... I guess the privatisation of the post yeah. put paid to that as being a yes, thing. Yes, yes. But it was... I don't think it was quite cabinet rank. It depended on the position, but he was a fairly high up Mm-hmm. Uh, figure certainly, certainly well enough to merit a seat in the cabinet. We thank you for a most interesting and delightful evening. We feel that you are to become inventor of a new magic. 
we regard this invention as destined almost to revolutionize the means of human communication. Cecil Rake, Her Majesty's Postmaster General. All right, it's an old, an old conservative uh, MP there, was, sounding. Um, what, what do you think? He was right though. He did revolution? He did revolutionise things. He was kind of speaking like uh, he, like he was abroad, and he was trying yeah. to speak to a, a, a native, a, yes. a, a native or something, <laughs> speaking well, very slowly and clearly. Two beers, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although um, I guess that is a reasonable way to speak into a, a big horn for the mm. first time. Let's, let's hear another one. Um, this is Edmund Yates. Um, what can you tell us about Edmund Yates? Uh, Edmund Yates was an author and editor of the World Newspaper. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first, one of the first journalists to pioneer the interview, where you'd go right. out and actually ask people what they thought, rather than just writing about them. The World Newspaper, is that? That probably turned into something else. I've, yeah, sorry. I'm not entirely no, okay. sure what it is. <laughs> okay. He also lived quite near to Charles Dickens, which is his other claim to frame. Okay. Not very much known about him, I think. Okay, well, uh, anyway, Edmund Yates was another luminary of the time. Let's see what he had to say about this uh, marvellous new invention to Mr. Edison. This is the record of a most marvellous dinner transmitted to you by your most marvellous invention. If I lack words to describe the dinner, it is because I am so enraptured and so enchanted by your invention that I find myself much more stupid than I ought to be after the grand excitement of our friends' meats and wine. You can, you can almost see him swaying, can't you? Clutching yeah. a sherry glass. He's very, very impressed by the wine, apparently, yes. which is not really what we're here to talk about. No. But uh, yeah, so you can hear all of these are the mm. idea of these recordings is their messages to be sent back to Edison so he can hear mm. them in America. Um, the the after dinner speaking business was a big deal at this point, yes. as you might expect, for a place that doesn't have radio or TV or anything like that. <laughs> So yes. uh, yeah, there's a there's a kind of after dinner speaking conventions going on with these that sound a bit bit odd to say the least. Next one we have somebody that you might vaguely have heard of. Um, this guy, well, is he still a household name? Maybe not, but as part of his double act, perhaps it's uh, Sir Arthur Sullivan. Ah, part of Gilbert and Sullivan. The Sullivan and Gilbert and Sullivan. That's oh, right. Excellent. Um... So he was the he was the music bit, yes, rather well. than the lyrics bit. Yes, but they're responsible for such. Well, hits, I suppose, as HMS Pinafore, Pirates of Penance, and the Millard, I believe. Um, very popular in the United States as well. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of vaguely anti-establishment, anti-authority, I should put it that way more. Um, plays, but kind of a warm and comforting way. A bit like Yes Minister. Hmm. Operetta. Yes, a comedic operetta. Are you, a, are you a big fan of operetta? Uh, not a huge fan, though I do enjoy it whenever they sing it on the West Wing. Okay. Or Sideshow Bob. So this is Sir Arthur Sullivan, and uh, he has some very interesting thoughts about uh, the meaning of having all this recorded music. The sound here, I've tried to fiddle with it a bit to make it sound uh, audible. Um, but listen carefully, see if you can see what he's got to say about recorded music, and uh, see if you agree with him. <laughs> we will now pass on to the next phonogram, 
which will begin with a record that I am sure you will receive with infinite delight. Knowing your love for music, I need only say that the record will be the voice of the great composer, Sir Arthur Sullivan. For myself, I can only say that I am astonished and somewhat terrified at the result of this evening experiment. Astonished at the wonderful power you have developed and terrified at the thought that so much hideous bad music may be put on record forever. But all the same, I think it is the most wonderful thing that I have ever experienced, and I congratulate you with all my heart on this wonderful discovery. Arthur Sullivan. All right. Um, yeah, he, he's a bit negative, yeah? <laughs> Is he wrong? Bit of a negative, Nelly. Yes, I think he's wrong. I think uh, there's no problem with bad music being recorded. I mean, who's to say what's bad music anyway? <laughs> I think uh, without the bad music, you don't get the good music anyway. That's, so It's very true. Yeah, I don't agree with him. I'm pro having recorded music, even if some of it's bad. It's all right. That's, that's not the end of the world. It's interesting, I was, I was looking up this, the first recorded album, as opposed to individual songs, of Gilbert and Sullivan was recorded in 1917 mm-hmm. by the Gramophone Company, mm-hmm. which later became HMV. Yep, his master's voice, as yes. in the, the dog listening, yes. to the, listening to the phonogram. Mm-hmm. What's the future of Sir Arthur Sullivan? Does he uh, survive long after he that? He lives a little bit longer, I think about 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he falls out with Gilbert oh dear and they end up not speaking to each other and hating each other um, oh that's a shame just like many bands since yeah Smiths. yeah it's like the like the Gallaghers yes the Gallaghers that's what I was yeah, thinking of much like the Gallaghers I think most of these people are gone within the next 10 years yes unfortunately. I think it's a fairly aged crowd it is yeah um, let's hear one more this is the last one of them all this is uh, Mr. A.M. Broadley I know nothing about A.M. Broadley. What can you tell us about this guy? Uh, he's an interesting figure. He is a barrister, an author, a company promoter, and a social figure. Mm-hmm. Um, he's born in India. He has a broad knowledge of Islamic law. Mm-hmm. And he spends most of his life getting in and out of arguments with Edward VII, who doesn't like his behaviour in India. Right, okay. uh, And tries to get him to leave the country, buys up houses so he won't visit them. Right, uh, okay. Etc, etc. So, uh, an interesting figure. Controversialist. Wow. Okay. Let's see what A.M. Broadley has to say for himself. This is the last one of these, this dinner party. Yeah, mysteries. The mysteries of the East and the mysteries of Egypt fail before an invention which is doubtless destined to effect a revolution in the means of communication throughout the civilized world. A. M. Broadley, Barrister at Law. Charge your glasses, gentlemen. Upwards, if you please. <laughs> <laughs> That's some very drunk old English men. men. Yeah, That's... from 1888. <laughs> um, having a party to celebrate having heard the, the phonograph for the first time, which must have been quite exciting. Yeah. And especially because they were roaring drunk, as you can hear. Um, Do we know what they drunk? Wine, I believe, is what he said. Well, um, hope it was good wine. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure it was. It's a, between them, these guys could have afforded some good wine for sure. 
Let's have something a bit easier on the ear, shall we? Yes. <laughs> okay. When we get later into this show, we'll be able to rely on just original recordings. Um, I do realise that at this stage, that's a bit much to ask. So we're going to hear something that's a bit easier to deal with. This is a representation of the music that was being uh, written and performed for the first time in 1888. And uh, this is uh, Mahler, Gustav Mahler. It's a symphony number one in D major. It's called Titan. Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. All right, so we had a bit of Marla there. That's a bit of a relief mm. from the scratchiness of the recordings. Of course, electronic recording didn't come along until the 1920s, and um, yeah, everything is acoustically recorded at this point. Mm. That means the actual vibrations from the sound aren't actually pushing the needle to cut into the wax. But there are a few other recordings at this time. This first one is... Uh, Isla's Orchestra. I think Isla's Orchestra were kind of our, well, we were saying first recording artists. Maybe it's Isla's Orchestra because mm. they're the first people put together to make recordings in the studio. Normally, you put together an orchestra to fill an auditorium, but in this case, we just want to make recordings. Uh, but the recording studios, we're talking about little rooms. Mm. So they could only have four or five performers around this recording horn. So they invented this new concept, the parlour orchestra. We would 
now call that a band, I guess. <laughs> so it's, it's like the first band. Um, they had various different personnel instrumentation. Um, the, it was called Isler's Parlor Orchestra, so it was uh, Edward Isler on piano. We had George uh, Schweinfest, a famous flautist, D.B. Dana on cornet, and William Tucson on uh, clarinet, and uh, Charles P. Lowe on xylophone. Um, Quite an international orchestra that sounds by the names they are all americans they're all americans, um, they're all americans. Uh, lots of different european names at this time it's uh, the age of the greatest immigration to america mm-hmm. as well they performed dance music so that meant uh, quadrilles waltzes polkas scottishes that kind of thing the pop music of its day this is the first like recording of a of a recording artist of a band you can call it. I, I don't want to big it up too much, but I feel like this is the the if you're making a, a proper discography of releases, this is probably the first one. So it's Isla's Parlor Orchestra, and there's no name. It doesn't have a name, but untitled. But, but uh, untitled, let's call it. So here it is, Isla's Parlor Orchestra. Played the Edison work on New Jersey by the Isla's Parlor Orchestra. That's uh, enough for now of uh, Isla's Parlor Orchestra. Mm. What did you make of Isla's Parlor Orchestra? You could hear a lot of the violins, couldn't you? The violin was obviously either closest to the form or... Yeah. Um, later we'll get into engineering, mm. um, being a recording engineer. That's uh, something that takes a long time to take off. Okay. I think it's not until the 20s that people really identify that as their job. But one thing I've noticed listening to these early recordings is that... Um, engineering develops quite quite a lot <laughs> through the years yeah it's a very difficult thing because you know the some notes would record much more loudly than others sometimes they'd be moving them backwards and forwards on chairs nearer and further to the microphone because you need to know how loud something will record uh, drums were a pain because they were way too loud and they, they would yeah. they'd make it jump even so so to do something about that. Was this record available commercially? Are we yet at a commercial record? or uh, Ish. Ish. Um, possibly. That's a question I don't have an answer for because it's uh, these these records have been kind of recovered. It seems like a test pressing more than anything else. Mm. Um, let's hear something that's uh, 
definitely wasn't issued commercially, but it was an experimental recording. This is uh, Alice J. Shaw. I want to tell you about Alice J. Shaw. She's um, an American performer. They called her the Whistling Prima Donna. Oh, she's she a uh, whistling woman. She's the whistling woman. Oh. She, she toured Europe and India as well, performing as a whistler. Starting in 1886 with a performance for teachers at Steinway Hall in New York. And uh, in England the following year, she whistled for the Prince of Wales. <laughs> not at, before. She whistled for the Prince of Wales. It's a, it's a privilege not many people get. Well, no. It's, Ed- not, it's not Prince Charles, though. It's, it's Edward the... It's Edward. He becomes Edward the Seventh. Edward the Seventh. Bit of a, bit of a playboy. Mm. Also waited a very long time yeah, for his he mother did. to die. Yeah, that's um, a, some, some similarities yeah. there. And, and I'm sure Prince Charles enjoys a good whistle. Mm. Um, so b- because a whistling woman was sometimes considered vulgar, Shaw was careful to craft her shows with the utmost decorum, both in her physical movements and in her facial expressions. A reviewer that year acknowledged her uniqueness and hoped she would re- remain so because a generation of whistlers is an appalling thing to imagine. <laughs> I'm sure we can agree. However, <laughs> Alice J. Shaw did not agree because later in life she performed with two of her daughters, Ethel and Elsie, whistling and singing twins known as the May Blossoms. We do not have a recording of the May Blossoms, Alas. unfortunately. Or fortunately. Uh, let's hear a, a brief clip of uh, the whistling of... Mrs. Shaw. I mean, that was quite impressive, really. Nah, uh, it, was, it was some whistling, that's for sure. Yeah. Sally was in a shower, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. A bit voyeuristic, really. Well, what, I mean, it, it, it sounds like that because I've, uh, it, it's an unlistenable recording that I've removed all the crackle and hiss from, and in doing so, I've turned it into it sounds like it's in the shower. Um, you sure this wasn't you in the shower? <laughs> this, is, this is really not me in the shower. This is a professional whistler. The famous voice that we haven't heard yet is Thomas Edison. Oh. And let's, let's, should we hear the first recording of Thomas Edison? Let's. This is Thomas Edison uh, talking to one of his uh, colleagues, one of his friends. He was sending a, sending a message to him. And uh, he's going to talk about a trip around the world. Um, I take it from this recording that Thomas Edison hadn't left America at this point because his understanding of European geography is uh, quite odd. Um, this is this is Thomas Edison and his trip around the world. Uh, now, Mr. Blaine, as you've been telling around the world, I think you around the world on the photograph. I'm not certain what it is. I'll take you on the steamer, uh, an art steamer to Liverpool, and from Liverpool to London, from London on the London and Brighton Railroad to Brighton. And from Brighton, we'll go on those little two-cent steamers across the English Channel to Calais, and from Calais, we'll go on to Chemin du Fer de Nord. I can't give you the exact Parisian pronunciation of this railroad, but I guess you'll understand it. We'll get into Paris and make for the Grand uh, Hotel. Then uh, in the morning, we'll go to our bankers and get a little money on our letters of credit. Then we'll go and stay around Paris for about two weeks, go to Berlin. After we had stayed about two, three days in Berlin and got the blues, why we'll go to St. Petersburg. And St. Petersburg, we'll go to Moscow. And from Moscow, back for the same route to Berlin. And from Berlin, we'll go to Vienna. 
and to see another wooden person, to see the Hungarians. And then most people would go to Monte Carlo. But we'll not go to Monte Carlo, we'll go to Munich, or Munchen. I believe they call it Munchen, but that's not a very nice name to it. I, uh, I like to call it Munich. Well, then from Munich we'll go to Milan. Milan, we'll go to uh, Rome. Rome, we'll go across the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know, but what I'm a little out of my geography. We'll go to Alexandria. Alexandria to through the Suez Canal, to the Red Sea, into the Bay of Bengal, and then to uh, Bombay. Bombay, we'll probably get the uh, colony and stay in the hospital two, three months. So there's uh, Edison describing a fantasy trip around the world. It's a, a, a genre that hasn't really taken off, but it's an interesting idea. A little nip into Russia, I see. Yeah, he was going into Russia and then back out again. I, I don't know how he proposed to do this. He, he never did it, obviously, but he, it's, it's all right. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not record that? Let's go back to uh, Colonel Gerode in London. Ah. Colonel Gerode in London, he uh, he heard of a big event taking place in the Crystal Palace, which was a the place to be at that time. At the Crystal Palace, there was a festival where they were performing uh, Handel's Israel in Egypt, a piece that you might be familiar with some of. Um, it was a gigantic auditorium. There were 23,722 people there. Wow. And uh, in front of them were 500 musicians and a choir of 4,000 voices. Nice. Quite, uh, quite an amazing thing to have been at. And uh, up there on the balcony was Garoud and his... Uh, his uh, Edison phonograph, and he was recording it. And we have three cylinders recorded at that time. Unfortunately, there's very little we can make out from them. I'm going to play you the one bit that we can make out at all. This is as, as far as we can get. This is the only point where the voices manage to come through the wall of white noise. And you can kind of imagine what an amazing thing, a stunning thing it would have been to hear. Uh, but you, you need your imagination to hear it now. Let's see what we can make out from, from this, all right. if anything at all. Kind of hear it a bit. Yes, yeah. it's it's you can get underneath it. it. There's a there's a beauty to it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a shame if if you hear the rest of it, there's really nothing you can pick out at all. It's it's kind of just noise. But yeah, there are a couple of moments like that. That's the biggest moment where mm. you can hear the music they're playing. All right, let's uh let's move back onto our famous people. We have uh, Gladstone. Ah. Let's let's hear something about Gladstone. William Ewart Gladstone. So four times British Prime Minister. Conservative, then Liberal MP, uh -huh. uh, passed the, sec the Third Reform Act, disestablished the Church of Ireland, um, had a rather interesting journey from stern, unbending Tory to radical Liberal MP, uh -huh. um, one of the titanic figures of the 19th century history. I think AJPT Taylor called him um, the greatest statesman in that 19th century, as defined by him and his rivalry with Benjamin Disraeli. Um, hmm. Victoria hated him. Um, 
She was more of a fan of Disraeli. She loved Disraeli, loved anyone but Gladstone. She said he lectured her like he was at a public meeting. (laughs) Um, We don't really have a very good recording of uh, Gladstone, unfortunately. And uh, doubt has been cast onto whether this is really him as well. So um, it's a bit of a controversial one. Um, If you can make anything at all, you have done better than I have. It is a bit vague. I think you can you can hear mm. at the end that they they announce their names. This is one of the things yeah. that we characterises like this. It's like writing a signature at the yeah. bottom of a letter. Alexander Graham Bell also had an English agent called uh, Henry Edmonds. So he was an engineer. He was born in Halifax in Yorkshire, and uh, he was a mechanic and uh, also a brilliant publicist, just as much as Colonel Gurred was. And uh, he claimed to have been in Edison's laboratory on that day in 1877 when he made his first successful recording with the phonograph um and he had connections but his solicitor was a uh, sydney morse and uh, sydney morse played rugby for england and that day that was an indicator that you were right up there in the high social classes some would say still is that meant that he was a friend of queen victoria's french governess wow and an uh, occasional visitor to the annual royal summer party at balmoral with this knowledge, Henry Edmonds gave Morse a graphophone and a load of cardboard cylinders, and uh, Morse headed north by train. And uh, apparently the uh, this famous invention, the fame of it had reached the ears of royalty, and uh, Queen Victoria expressed a desire to have a demonstration. Her Majesty, with her family and friends around, was uh, kind of encouraged to speak into it, which is, uh, if this is true, it's it's unique. She did make another cylinder recording to pass her messages on one time, but she insisted as soon as it was heard, it was destroyed. Mm. She uh, refused at least three times to record messages for Edison. Um, but yeah, surrounded by friends and family at Balmoral, she uh, unbent enough to speak a few words in the general direction of the graphophone's mouthpiece. <laughs> Um, and it was a, a treadle-operated machine. Um, and uh, on his return to London, he showed Henry Edmonds the product of his labours, a small black cylinder with a few black spiral lines traced upon it, containing the record of the voice and speech of the celebrated Queen. He declared that it was his most cherished possession and would pass it on to his children as his chiefest treasure. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the Queen said, he was warned sternly not to tour the country playing it. Um, so there were no publicity opportunities from it, unfortunately, for oh, him. Um, but it was kept by his family. And in, in recent years, it's been uncovered and uh, people have been trying to get some kind of sound out of it that sounds like something reasonable. And uh, after a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of work, uh, the best they've been able to come up with is this. Can, can you hear what she's saying? Yeah. 
Did you make it any of that? None at all. There have been a number of different uh, attempts at deciphering it. Been made online, you can find out. Um, yeah, not hugely impressive, yeah? No, I believe Queen Victoria had a slightly Germanic accent as well. Doesn't sound like it, no, from what I can tell there. I suppose she had been mm. ruling England for about I think she, 50 years at this point. She lived in England for quite a while, yeah. Probably forgive her for not having a German accent anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's interesting, the last days of Queen Victoria, there's a there's film of Queen Victoria in her carriage, very brief moment, mm. and a photograph from the same parade where she's smiling. Have you seen Queen Victoria smiling? Yes, I have then. Disconcerting image, Queen Victoria smiling. Let's move on to uh, 1889. We have less recordings from this year, but some, some still some interesting ones. Um, let's have a listen to uh, Effie Stewart and Theo Wangerman. This is the Patterson Waltz. So Effie Stewart was a New York soprano of no particular fame, but Theo Wangerman was one of Edison's technicians. I think this is especially interesting for the terrible fluff introduction. That's more interesting than the song, perhaps. <laughs> the Patterson Waltz, run by Miss Effie Stewart of New York City. The on February 25th, some might say little merit but we're getting into the at this stage we are playing every recording that exists <laughs> still <laughs> that's the that's the state we're in right now um but you know it's it's interesting that these things are out there opera was a big deal at this time um mm. naturally shall we have another famous person yes let's let's get back to the world of fame this is somebody called benjamin harrison who was benjamin harrison benjamin harrison was president of the united states at this moment was he president he's president between 1889 and 1893 right okay so he is a president he is he is won the election in 1888 Uh president 1889 he interrupted grover cleveland's two non-consecutive terms oh the only non-consecutive terms yes um Widely rated as a below-average president, quite good on the rights of African Americans. Okay, that uh, was important, obviously. Important. Um, six states were admitted to the union, more than under any other president. Oh, sounds like he was pretty good. Yeah. Well, he just signed the admission papers. All right, so let, let's hear Benjamin Harrison. This is an, an excerpt from a speech uh, talking about his uh, achievements. President of the United States, I was president of the first Pan American Congress in Washington, D.C. Believe that with God's help, our two countries shall continue to live side by side in peace and prosperity. 
Benjamin Harrison. There we go, Benjamin Harrison. That's clearer. Yeah, it's getting a bit clearer. Let's have a listen again to our first band. This is our first repeat performance, and this is Isla's Orchestra again. Isla's Orchestra this time have uh, a song title. It's the 5th Regiment March. Nice. Marching bands were the big popular music of the USA at this time. Every every town would have its own marching band, and uh, this was the age of John Philip Sousa. We'll hear Sousa's band a bit later, not today. Um, this is Isla's Orchestra then with the 5th Regiment March. some kind of jolly marching music mm. there from Isla's Orchestra last one from them today so this is Centuries of Sound we are playing music from the 1880s the uh, last three years of the 1880s when uh, we've gone from the experiments in recording music to the first prototype that's kind of being uh, sent out to different places now. we're going to have another famous voice quite a lot of this time is recording famous voices this is one of the most famous statesmen of his era. It's uh, Otto von Bismarck. What can yep. you tell us about Bismarck? So Bismarck is first minister president of Prussia and then becomes the first minister uh, of a united German empire. He forges um, Germany out of the ex-states of the Holy Roman Empire, Prussia, Bavaria, etc., um, etc. Et mm-hmm. He's a well-known reactionary figure who despises well despises any kind of left-wing feeling um mm. well known for his blood and iron speech ironically really liked Disraeli um mm. very very fond of Disraeli he had two pick portraits in his house one of his king uh, his emperor mm. Kaiser Wilhelm and one of Disraeli so the creator of Germany do you think we can call him the creator of modern Germany if anyone is a creator of modern Germany yes i think the nation state it's definitely mm. um so at this Bismarck. stage, at this stage, he's getting on a bit, isn't he? Yes, that he will remain um, minister of minister president of Germany until Kaiser Wilhelm II comes to the throne and forces him out. Okay, when is that? That's quite uh, soon, isn't it? T- he's got about ten years to go. I think. Oh, like okay. But yes, yeah. he is quite old at this point. He mm. is quite an old man. Okay. Um, so let's, let's let's hear what Bismarck sounds like. Do you speak any German? It's a very, very small bit. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can make it more than I can. I, I speak none at all. So this is anyway, the voice of Bismarck. Friedrich Mohr, auf Nummer 
So the voice of Bismarck. Mm. If you know what Bismarck was saying, you can drop us a line uh, at centuriesofsoundmail at gmail.com or you can come along to the website centuriesofsound.com. Let's, let's hear another German. This is a... I'm going to see if you've heard of this guy, Ludwig Karl Koch. He's uh, not familiar to you. Perhaps uh, some older people will have heard of him. He's uh, the David Attenborough of his day. and His oh. day would be the uh, 1950s. Let's say no. 1940s, 1950s, uh, the radio era. His name would be very familiar to people who were around at that time. So some of our listeners maybe will remember Ludwig Karl Koch. Uh, at this stage, he is all of eight years old. At this age, he was given a phonograph. Uh, an already a naturalist, he recorded several animals. And this is the first known recording of birdsong he made in 1889. Later on, Ludwig Karl Koch, he would uh, have a quite an amazing life. He was given a personal letter of recommendation by Hermann Goering before the Second World War and uh, sent off to a conference because Goering was a big fan of uh, nature. Mm. And uh, he met a, a high-ranking Nazi official who said uh, he very much admired his work as well as a, as a naturalist and recorder of nature sounds. And uh, that, that German official was uh, bumped off like an hour later and uh, suspecting that he might be considered a suspect because he, he was not a Nazi. He had to escape the country and uh, could only take a handful of cylinders with him. The rest of them were lost, including uh, many historic recordings of German famous people were, were lost and, and natural recordings as well were lost at that time. Uh, in the UK, even though he had this thick German accent, he became the big naturalist of the BBC in the radio era of the BBC. Um, so his his voice and his sound recordings became very familiar to listeners. And if if people listen to the Goon Show, there are, there are parodies. If if you hear a nature journalist with a with a German voice, that's a parody of Ludwig Karl Koch. I did not know that. Mm, okay, let's let's hear. This is this is an Indian Sharma. This is the first nature recording, and not only the first one; it's the only one for quite a while. Perfectly lovely. Quite nice. Yeah, a bit of bird song. Never, hurt never, anyone. never hurt anyone. Um, okay, who else is around as far as uh, performers are going? We have the famous composer Johannes Brahms. Yes, who is still around at this point. What can you tell us about Brahms? Uh, he's Austrian. He is. Uh, he's well known for very rigid classical music. Very well admired in the 1890s. Considered part of the free bees of music: Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Uh-huh. Um, Vienna, of course, was a big cultural centre at, at this time, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this is this is Brahms. It's his voice and a recording of his. Uh, um, what can we call it? <laughs> a, rec- a recording of him trying to play on the piano. I think that's enough of that. <laughs> yes, definitely enough. <laughs> I'm not sure how much of it's to do with uh, the the cylinder being warped or whether he was uh, in a bad state at the time. But that is a, a an awful recording. Yes. But you know, it's it's a famous person. So you you've heard the voice of Brahms and you've heard Brahms playing the piano now. 
Um, all right, let's let's hear a couple of other things before we finish. Um, we have a passage from uh, this a poet Robert Browning. This is interesting because Robert Browning was very old at this stage, just um, mm. since last year. The poem is called "How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to Ikes." And there's that signature at the end of everyone saying their names. Yeah, you have to say your name at the end. It's only for this year, really. You'll notice that that will disappear next time already. It's a fad. It was a fad. Um, they still announce the names at the beginning of cylinders of re- musical recordings, though. So <laughs> that that will that will stick around until about 1910. So Browning uh, he died quite soon after mm. the recording that, and it was played at his memorial service. It's the first. Uh, the first example of somebody's voice being heard after they died, really. It was, wow. uh, yeah. Can you can you imagine you'd never heard the voice of somebody dead before and it's their memorial service and you're hearing their voice? Um, Could be quite creepy. Must have been massively eerie. You've been listening to Centuries of Sound with James. And Sean. If you want more information about Centuries of Sound, you can come to our website, that's centuriesofsound.com, or you can email us at centuriesofsoundmail at gmail.com. That's all one word. So what do you make of the music of the late late 1880s? It's, I think it's interesting that a lot of what we've heard is not music. It's recording famous people. So people suddenly realise, oh, mm. these people will die soon. I think, well, <laughs> I, I don't know if that was their motivation. <laughs> but I think a lot of it is uh, to do with them not sh- being sure what this mm. medium was for. It was a, kind of a dictaphone and... You know, they're a list of the uses, which preserving the voices of famous people for future generations was mm. one of the main things they said there. So you can kind of understand that. Mm. And it really wasn't good enough to record music. Mm. I think we can see that Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. So next time we're going to see the first recording artist. So thank you very much for listening this week. I'd like to play one song that I really do like from this time from uh, Claude Debussy. And this is his uh, arabesque number one.
Thanks for listening to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast. If you would like to support the show and get access to a host of extras for just $5 per month, please come to patreon.com slash centuriesofsound. Or if you know anyone who might be interested in the show, please help to spread the word.